I've met a lot of people in my life who think that heaven is for good people. Lots of people who aren't Christians think that heaven is for good people. And lots of people who are Christians don't think that heaven is for good people. But what if heaven is for good people? And what if it's only for good people? Well, now that I hope you're thinking about these things, let's be enlightened by Jesus about whether or not heaven is only for good people. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, where Jesus will address this matter of who's fit for heaven and who's not fit for heaven. And it is quite a cage rattler, I'll tell you right now. We're studying the Gospel according to Matthew on Sunday mornings as a church, so if you're just joining us, welcome. We're having a great time. I'm glad you're joining us. Uh, we've worked our way through this entire chapter and are now at the final section. Uh, it's the section where Jesus deals with the one we call the rich young ruler. Guess why we call him the rich young ruler? He's rich and he's young and he's a ruler. So uh, if you look at Mark's account and Luke's account and Matthew's account, they, they describe him in different ways. But put put them together, he's the rich young ruler, and he comes to Jesus asking about eternal life, about heaven, about who goes to heaven, about how to get to heaven, and Jesus gives a really, really fascinating series of responses. So I hope you're ready to have your cage rattled if need be, uh, your mind shaken a little bit if need be. Uh, I think it's healthy for us, provided it's Jesus doing it. Ready to go? Okay. Matthew 19, verse 16 says, And behold, a man came up to him. Mark's account says he's running and he's kneeling before Jesus. Came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? What a great question. Before we talk about the greatness of the question, uh, it is quite the contrast uh, between what we saw earlier in chapter 19, where small children are being brought to Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm paraphrasing, to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And here this man is running and kneeling down saying, what do I need to do to gain eternal life or to gain heaven? So it's quite the contrast, probably there on purpose. And now, I hope you're ready for a surprising answer from Jesus. It's a surprising contrast, but now a surprising answer. Look with me, if you would, at verse 17. And he, Jesus, said to him, the rich young ruler, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Surprised? <laughs> Maybe not if you've read it before, but if you've not read it before, if you're, or if you pretend like you haven't read it before, I'm surprised. The, the guy comes asking such a great, simple question. Uh, you'd expect Jesus, because of what he learned at Shabbat school, um, not Sunday school, but Saturday school, if you're a Jew, uh, from what Jesus learned in Shabbat school to be able to answer his question. Jesus doesn't answer his question, at least not at first. Jesus questions the man's wording. So Jesus doesn't say, well, what you do to gain eternal life is is repeat this prayer and ask me into your heart. Well, he probably wouldn't have learned that at Shabbat school either. But interestingly enough, I kid, um, Jesus doesn't answer his question right away. Instead, he criticizes his verbiage. Now, why would you criticize someone's wording? 
well, I suppose we could say because words matter, but also because we're going to see this man is not thinking rightly about God. And when you don't think rightly about God, you don't think rightly about yourself. And when you don't think rightly about God and yourself, you don't think rightly about the one he's talking to, Jesus. God is good. God made a good world. He made human beings in his good image and called those who bear his image, men and women, to do good. And we know how that turned out. Romans chapter 3 says, no one does good, no, not one. And it's quoting Psalm 14, so it's not just in the New Testament. No one does good, no, not one. And so by this man coming to Jesus saying, what good deed must I do to gain eternal life? He's not thinking rightly. He's not using the right words. And Jesus says, hold on, stop. And what I want you to think about for a moment is, as a Jewish man, this guy actually would have been taught otherwise. Sometimes we forget the basics, and so the basics become super profound. What's true about God? God is good, and God made a good world and pronounced it good, and he made people in his image, and that was good, and he called them to do good, and they didn't do good, and that's not good, so we're not good, no, not one. And so you're never going to look outside of yourself for help, which is where you have to look to the good one, Jesus, for salvation if you're not thinking rightly about God and thinking rightly about yourself. Hope you're following me. It's, hold on just a minute, you've forgotten the basics. The basics. And I'm going to go back to my somewhat controversial introduction. I was purposely trying to kind of bait you into thinking about the basics. Is heaven for good people or for bad people? I'm putting it a little bit differently now. Who deserves to go to heaven? Good people or bad people? Lots of people I've met in my life who are not Christians think heaven is for good people. And they're right. Maybe not in the way I'm meaning it or the way God would mean it, but they're actually right. And lots of Christians think heaven is not for good people and they're wrong. <laughs> heaven is only for good people. And so we have a problem. This man is thinking wrongly. We think wrongly, even sometimes as Christians, and so it's no, no wonder we're confusing when we tell people about eternal life. So I'm hoping to maybe rattle your cage a little bit by letting Jesus actually do it. So, ready to move on? Hope you're ready to move on. Hope I haven't lost you. Stop just a minute. Reflect upon what I've said, what you've said. That's what Jesus is saying. And if that wasn't controversial or outrageous enough, here comes the next more outrageous response from Jesus. Verse 17 ends by saying, if you would enter life, and the question is about eternal life, heaven. If you would enter life, what does he say? Keep the commandments. How about that? How about failing Bible college, evangelism class, 101? That's not what you tell people. But it actually is what you should tell people before you tell them the gospel. Otherwise, the gospel won't make sense if we don't understand what God's requirement is first. And we'll never understand the greatness of what Jesus actually does and who he is if we don't understand that to gain eternal life according to God's Law, according to God's order, the way he's made the world, to gain eternal life, what do you do? Jesus says, keep the commandments. And if you keep the commandments, you will gain eternal life. 
pretty straightforward. We know that this, this is true. How do we know that this is true? Because Jesus says it's true. <laughs> so we, well, I'm going to start there, but, but Jesus isn't the first person. The incarnate Christ is not the first one to come along and say this. This is taught in the Old Testament. This is taught by Jesus. This is taught by Jesus' apostles. Here's the principle that God has laid down in his world. If you do the right thing, you gain eternal life. That is the always true principle. If you do the right thing, you gain eternal life. Now, we all know that that creates a big problem for Pat Ebendroth and you and everybody else related to Adam. But it's still true. And Jesus says, you want to gain eternal life? Keep the commandments. Well, this isn't new. This is Leviticus 18. This is Luke chapter 10 as well. This is Romans chapter 10, following Jesus. This is Galatians chapter 3. But it's amazing how many Christians don't know that this is actually true. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5 says this, You shall keep, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And if you're not convinced that that's talking about eternal life, I know that 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 it's talking about eternal life, not just because I'm prideful and arrogant, but because Jesus references that text in Luke chapter 10 when they're talking about eternal life. Luke chapter 10, verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Keep the commandments and you'll have eternal life. The whole conversation was about eternal life. It's taught there as well. Romans chapter 10, verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's talking about eternal life. Galatians 3, 12, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So the devil has a secret, and it's super popular. And the devil's secret is God doesn't require perfection. The devil's secret, in other words, is heaven is not reserved for good people. It actually is. Good people. Now, lest you think I'm preaching a different religion other than Christianity, heaven is for sinners also who trust in the good one to be their representative so that God would accept them because he and he alone keeps the commandments. That's where we're going, but I didn't want any of you to bail out on me too quickly. But you see, before Jesus proclaims the good news to this individual, he preaches the truth about God's requirements. And there's a lesson there for us to learn. A really important lesson. Hold on a second. You're talking about what good do I need to do? There's only one good, God. Oh, I I guess I knew that, but I've forgotten about that. God and God alone is good and he made a good world with good people in his image and he told them to do good and they didn't do good and now they have a huge problem. But the principle is still true. Do this and live. Do this to gain eternal life. Keep the commandments to gain eternal life. We have a huge problem. Jesus is 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 letting this guy have it, if you will. He's not preaching gospel yet. He's preaching raw Law, if you will. He's giving it to them with both barrels. Law, both barrels. Can we still say both barrels in our culture? 
Or did I trigger you? I'll admit, I did that last hour too. They laugh more first hour or last hour. Anyway. In other words, I mean, the, the guy, he's pushing this guy with the truth. He's not being legalistic. Too many times we think when we hear law, that's legalism. Actually, what happens is if you have strict law, like Jesus is saying, do this and you'll have eternal life. Keep the commandments. That's not legalism. That's just, that's just the daunting, intimidating, severe reality of God's requirements. And that's law. That doesn't lead to legalism. It leads to desperation. It leads you to saying, then, then I'm in huge trouble. I can't do it. That's right. And you'll look outside of yourself for goodness to the good one who is none other than Christ as your substitute. Legalism comes actually from law light. When we lower the standard and we, we, we think we can somehow do it on our own. That's where legalism comes from. This is something that the Jews struggled with. We know they struggled with it because of Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, talking about eternal life, the reason the Jewish people, Paul says that he's talking about right then and there, didn't look to Christ to be their substitute, God's provision of righteousness. They didn't look to Him because they had a new, altered law light that they could keep. And that actually led to legalism, and it kept them from Christ. I think we should preach law in its severity. If you do perfectly, perpetually, and personally, we like to say, the law of God, you'll gain eternal life. In principle, you won't, you can't because you're a son or a daughter of Adam. But it's nevertheless true. Okay? This isn't good news. This is good because it's from God, but it's actually bad news to people like us. But before the good news comes, you got to understand the bad news or you'll never look to the good one who is Christ. Verse 18 says, transitioning just a little bit, he, the rich young ruler, said to Jesus, to him, which ones? Right? The disciples are over there going, can you believe this guy? Here Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he wasn't being novel. This is what's been true and always will be true. Keep the commandments. Well, yeah, but which one should I keep? It's like, you keep all of them, you idiot. <laughs> I mean, it's like the good God said, this is my world and you're my creation and this is what I expect of you. But yeah, but which ones? It's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And what also is interesting is sometimes Jesus doesn't even let people ask the question, as we've seen, because they formulated it the wrong way because they're thinking about the wrong categories. Now, this is a different sort of thing that Jesus does. He's, he's unpredictable to us. He, he's going to condescend. He's going to stoop down and, he, and he's going to reason with them on, on their level. Okay, if you want to think, if you want to think in those terms, uh, which ones? I'll answer you in your terms. So sometimes you don't answer a fool according to their folly, the proverb says. And sometimes you do answer a fool according to their folly. Depending on wisdom. Jesus is perfectly wise. Here he's doing it. How about verse 18 where it goes on to say, and Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is he doing? He's answering when it comes to human responsibility, right? 
to other fellow human beings. Uh, he's going to the Ten Commandments, or at least the portion of the Ten Commandments that addresses that. So you could say Exodus chapter 20, uh, but then just to make it real simple uh, and to put a bow on it, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. These would not have been new things for this man to hear. And then verse 20 says, the young man said to him, all, emphasized on purpose, even in the original language, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And again we go, can you believe this guy? Now I do, I think we should admire one thing that happens. And this often happens with people even in our day, even though he's self-righteous and we can all kind of chuckle and laugh and say, get a load of this guy. There is still something in him that causes him to say, I still lack something. He sees himself as righteous. We know he's not. He's righteous compared to his neighbor that he saw in the news committing a crime. Uh, he, he's, he's righteous uh, when it comes to a curve. We, we like being graded on a curve. Uh, but when it comes to actual strict adherence to what God requires, including motives, which Jesus talked about, remember, back in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, God cares about the externals. Yes, he does. And our actions, yes, he does. But Jesus goes Further, to make the point, God actually cares about the motives that go behind it as well. So there's no possible way on God's green earth that this guy's done all of these things perfectly. No possible way, unless he's comparing himself to other people and he's losing sight of the fact that God doesn't do it that way. All these I've kept, but what do I lack? So Jesus is going to, again, answer a fool according to their folly, and he's going to go there with him. So let's condescend with Jesus as he goes there with him. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, remember chapter 5 verse 48, Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God requires perfection. If you would be perfect, some of your translations might put it a little bit differently or might say complete, which is a fine translation of the word, but just know that it's complete as it would relate to perfectly keeping the commandments um, is the idea. So if you would be perfect as God would require, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven which according to our context is synonymous with eternal life. And then he says, and come follow me. So I think what Jesus did just did there, and lots of commentators would agree, is now he addresses the other issue. The human relationship issue is addressed, and he said, oh yeah, I've done that. Yeah, okay. And then Jesus addresses the God issue. And how does he address the God issue? He addresses the God issue because he's rich. And Jesus knows this man's heart. Jesus doesn't always talk this way to people, but he knows this rich man. And he says, in effect, if you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is what the law requires, then get rid of all of your riches that you love so much. Let's see where your first place is. That seems to be what Jesus is doing. I think that's what he's doing. Oh, you love God perfectly, personally and perpetually, as theologians like to say? Here's a test. Get rid of all your riches, and we'll see where your 
ultimate affection lies. And we know that it's not going to go well, this test that he has. This guy claims to be a law keeper, but he's actually a lawbreaker. He's an idolater. God is not first. He needs Christ, but he doesn't know he needs Christ because he's not thinking in terms of God's goodness and his requirements and, is, and not thinking in terms of, of himself. Then do notice it does say, importantly, at the end of verse 21, and come follow me. So up until that point in time, Jesus is preaching law. Keep the commandments, eternal life. All the neighborly stuff, eternal life. God, loving him, heart, soul, mind, and strength, as it would be evidenced by you getting rid of all of your things that you love so much, eternal life. Not happening. And so he doesn't need Christ. He doesn't need the good one as his substitute. He's fine on his own. But Jesus says, come and follow me. And for him, that would mean come and follow him and you're not going to have all of your stuff anymore. You're going to be like all of the other fishermen. He's not willing to do it. Doesn't see himself as he should, doesn't see God as he should, and therefore he doesn't see the need to attach himself to Christ by faith. And it's tragic and heartbreaking, really. Think about why Jesus would say, come and follow me. We know the whole book started, and I haven't gone there for a while, so I will today. Name him Jesus, 121, because he will save his people from their sins. He will deliver them from their sins. Yeah, come and attach yourself to me because I'm the Savior. I'm the good one. Uh, Jesus, who is called in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Righteous means adherence to commandments, adherence to law. Oh, he is the one who, in fact, has loved neighbor perfectly and loved God perfectly as our substitute. And so come to me. Even think of chapter 11 of Matthew, when Jesus is talking to people who are burdened by the law and its requirements. And not only that, uh, it's as if the religious leaders, they, they dogpile on with more. So now it's even, now it's even worse. And, and more rules and regulations. It's one thing for to have God's strict requirements, and now we have all these other rabbi so-and-so requirements, and so they're burdened, and we love what Jesus says. In Matthew 11, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, heavy laden by all of this law and extra law, and I will give you rest. I will give you Sabbath. Jesus himself is later called our Sabbath rest. We can finally go, <sighs> spiritually speaking. So it's no wonder that he says, come follow me. The disciples, the other disciples are following Jesus. They've attached themselves to Jesus, if you will, by faith because they have proclaimed, where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. John chapter 6, where Jesus keeps saying, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. In other words, trust in me, trust in me, trust in me. Why would he do that? Because he is none other than the good one. And I'm going to take you back to the introduction. And heaven is for good people. And it's only for good people. Or for sinners who are trusting in the good one. Remember in chapter 3 of Matthew, let's bring all of this together. Jesus, it is said of Jesus from heaven by his father. This is my beloved son in whom I am, remember, well pleased. 
In other words, he's the good one. I've been pleased with everything he's ever done or ever will do and all that he is. Listen to him. And what does Jesus say? Come to me and I'll give you rest. This is a masterful passage. If you can get past the unsettling nature of Jesus emphasizing what God requires. But I would suggest to you that only after you digest what he requires will you say, I can't do it. I need a perfect righteous substitute who also makes atonement for my unrighteousness. What a great, important text, but we forget these things sometimes. We forget and we we think, why in the world didn't Jesus just say, believe in me? Because he didn't actually understand the gravity of the bad news for him or the significance of what God actually requires. So if this man were to just believe in Jesus, he would be, be, be believing in a fake Jesus, not the true Jesus. He doesn't see God the right way. He doesn't see himself the right way. And so, of course, he doesn't see Jesus the right way. Well, we need to keep moving on in verse 23. And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Why would he say that? What is it about rich people, wealthy people, that it would make it difficult for them to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, when you're rich, you, 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 your needs are met. So when I have enough... I don't need to ask you, and I don't need to ask anybody else. I like having enough because I can meet my needs when I have enough. And, and if you take it to the extreme of if somebody is a rich person, then they tend to be rather self-sufficient. Oh, and he's young. Pretty hard for rich people to see their need for Christ. We It does happen. But we should answer that question in another way, too. Because it's not only, we're going to see, it's not only difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is going to move toward it's difficult for everybody to enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) And he's going to push it so far as to suggest it's impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven on their own. Look, plot thickens. Here we go. Let's think about this. You don't want to miss this. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle... We're meant to go, right? There's a little humor there. A camel through the eye of a needle. It's all I can do to, you know, put the spit on the thread as a 52-year-old, even with my glasses on and really good lighting and get it through the needle. A camel? I mean, it's just meant, this is absolutely ridiculous. It, It can't be done, I mean, to the point of absurdity. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He is saying, I believe that that's impossible. That that can't be done. Now, I know some of you may have been taught that it's just saying that it's hard because um, you may have been taught that um, there was a gate in the Middle East in the first century and uh, the camel had to take all of the stuff off of its body. Well, the people did, but you get the idea. Um, and, and, and if it knelt down and it was really hard, it could get through. I don't think that's right. He's going to go on to talk about impossibility. So I think that's a fable. Um, when, when you go with us to Nazareth, if you ever go to 
go with us to Nazareth. We'll go to the Nazareth village and it's super well done and the people are friendly and you learn about all this stuff and they reenact things and there's a well-meaning young person who's leading the tour, following a script and she'll tell you all about this special hard needle gate that the camel could go through but it was really hard and your pastor will be in the back going. <laughs> anyway, I digress. <laughs> he's, he's, he's moving us toward this is impossible. This is laughable. This can't be done. So again, we're supposed to say, then, then, then I can't do it. That's right. That's where we're supposed to go. So if we keep going, it says in verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? They're, they're, they believe in providence. They believe in sovereignty. Rich people aren't rich just because God is in control. And, and if we think about Abraham, certainly he was wealthy because of the blessing of God. Or Solomon was wealthy because of the blessing of God. And so their general way of thinking is people are wealthy because of the blessing of God. And so if, if rich people can't get in, then, then who could get in? Verse 26 then says, But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Two really important things said in the same sentence. Don't you think? With human beings, sons and daughters of Adam, salvation is impossible. But with God, the impossible is possible. In particular, when you trust in the good one, none other than Jesus. I think it really is good for us, though, to stop and ponder and pause. If we think about the fact that heaven is only for good people, I'm going to suggest to you that that's actually a true statement, or sinners who trust in the good one. But perfection is required. With human beings, it is impossible. Let's, let's put it this way. With human beings on our own, no one gets to heaven. Let's put it another way. Salvation is impossible. If salvation, eternal life, is gained by keeping the commandments. Just curious, how many of you have ever heard, I, I don't imagine there are a lot of you, but how many of you have ever heard recordings of John Gershner preaching or lecturing? Anybody ever hear John Gershner? John Gershner is, uh, was uh, one of R.C. Sproul's mentors. Just a more gravelly, gravelly, frightening version. And when I was in seminary, a cassette tape, remember those? <laughs> I aged myself. A cassette tape was floating around. People were making copies of it. And it was called Reformed Evangelism, uh, John Gershner. I can see my brother's handwriting because I got my copy from him. And, and it was something else. Gershner, I haven't done this for a while, so I'll do it for your viewing pleasure. He would say, <laughs> or listening pleasure. Remember, you are... The enemy of God. And there is absolutely nothing you could ever possibly do to be saved, even if you wanted to be. <laughs> now, I'm not very good at invitations, but I give myself props for that. <laughs> and, and if you have a hard time sleeping tonight because you remember that, sorry, not sorry. Because Gershner is right. He's absolutely right. Salvation is absolutely and utterly impossible. 
And so we need God. We need God and we need God through His Son, the one who came to not make His people save a bull or inspire them or empower them or something. He came to save His people from their sins. Remember, First John says sin is lawlessness. So that's the negative side of not keeping the commandments. And the positive side, He's Jesus Christ the righteous. First John chapter 2, He does all the right things for us. I so love that dichotomy, that contrast, the clarity that that brings. Impossible, possible. And that possible probably should be spelled with all caps. <laughs> In light of what Jesus says elsewhere, it, it's sure. It's sure. Well, let's keep moving. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, another synonym now for eternal life, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and do notice that these who've attached themselves to Jesus by faith, as shown in their following him, are going to be in the new world. In the new world, when the Son of Man, that is Jesus, the King, will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Before we move on, I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment. Do notice that the good one is exalted, and those He has represented who have trusted Him by faith are also exalted. Not because of what we do in our commandment keeping, but because of His. But do notice there is exaltation there with Him. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So the contrast, rich young ruler, and if I follow Christ, I'm going to lose it putting things in perspective, you believers, you disciples, evidence in your faith by following me when others left, John chapter 6, and they said, we're not going to go somewhere else because you have the words of eternal life. Just know that in the long run, it's actually better for you. So sometimes Peter gets scolded for his questions. He doesn't get scolded here. Jesus gives him a wonderful, encouraging answer saying, you will be there and it will be good, no, better than good. Not because you're good, but because of what I'm going to accomplish for you, no doubt. To receive a hundredfold eternal life, amazing. Finally, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. What do you think that means? Well, close context, we, we might say, well, and, and all of you disciples are going to be equal because you're all going to be ruling and reigning. That's true. Greater context in comparison to the rich young ruler who in this world certainly appears to be first, he can get a table, no problem. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Highly esteemed. But in the coming world, because he's not trusting in the good one, He'll be last. He's actually going to be the loser, not the winner. But you who are trusting in me, and in this present world, it's been hard because of your connection to me, you'll be ruling and reigning with me. First place. No higher place than that. Both are true in principle. 
I lean toward the latter in our context, but both are actually true in principle. It is for good reason that we as Christians say salvation is by grace alone. Our text helps us to see that. It is for good reason that we as Christians who are so apt even to believe the devil's lie that God doesn't require perfection, so we're just going to do more, try harder. It's for good reason that Jesus said, until I return, until I return, you're going to eat and drink bread and wine, and as you eat and drink bread and wine, you're reminded of the new covenant, and you do so in remembrance of me, Jesus says, the good one the one who gives us rest, the one who earns heaven for us. Do it in remembrance of me. And we're going to do that in just a moment, but we should pray first. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this rather radical account of the rich young ruler and Jesus. Thank you that you've preserved it for us even in history, throughout history, so that we can be encouraged, so that we can be confronted, so that we can be uh, better educated. Help us to never forget that heaven requires perfection. And that it's only in and through the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good one, that we have the sureness and certainty of eternal life. And so as we prepare to eat and drink, may we be doing so truly and earnestly and genuinely in remembrance of him, our great Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.